Okay, we're going to get started this evening. Uh, tonight we are continuing in our mission of learning how to pray in accordance to God's will by studying Paul's prayers that are recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. And as we enter into Paul's prayer closet, as you will, we're desiring to learn what to adore, appreciate, ask for, admonish, and amen in our own prayer lives. Uh, we've already seen what we ought to adore in prayer, and that is God, praising Him for who He is, and now we're learning what to appreciate in prayer, what we ought to thank God for. And the answer is we, wa- we ought to appreciate Christ, and we ought to thank God for every gift that we find in Him. Uh, we've seen so far that we ought to thank God for the gifts in Christ of spiritual victory, grace, faith, hope, love, life, growth, and ministry. Tonight, we're going to see that we ought to thank God not just for ministry, and this might sound strange for you at the beginning, but also for ministry success. We ought to thank God for the gift of success. Um, And this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where Paul writes these words. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And then just finishing out verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So this is Paul offering up to God a prayer of appreciation for the gift of success in ministry. Success that is given to all God's children in Christ. But before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to give us understanding according to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have tonight to approach you first and foremost in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that prayer is, a privilege bought by the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you that though that though in the Old Testament millions upon millions of sacrifices were offered up of the blood of, of lambs and of goats and of oxen because of the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we come boldly before you tonight in Jesus Christ's very own righteousness, knowing that as we pray in accordance to your will, you hear us. So Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word We pray, Father, that your spirit would accompany the teaching of your word tonight so that it would not just fill our minds, but it would change our hearts and it would transform our prayers. Father, we want to pray in accordance with your will. We want to know what your will is. And you have promised that when we ask for wisdom, you give it to us richly. So I pray that you would give it to us tonight for your honor and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins this prayer of thanksgiving and appreciation rather unexpectedly, at least when you look at the rest of his prayers of thanksgiving. Paul begins this prayer of thanksgiving by saying, but, 
In other words, in contrast, or despite something, Paul is yet thankful. So you have to ask yourself the question, in spite of what was Paul still thankful? What hardship or pressure was Paul exhibiting, you could call, enduring thankfulness under? And the most immediate pressure in context was concern for the Corinthian believers. That's what Paul says just before this passage in verses 12 through 13. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the, to, uh, preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So he says, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. In other words, even though Paul was having a fruitful ministry, publicly at least, there in Troas, he was personally in great turmoil. He said his spirit was not at rest. Why? Paul says, because Titus wasn't there. You say, well, why is that important that Titus wasn't there? Well, it's important because Titus was Paul's contact point with the rest of the Corinthian church. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, both in verse 6 and then later in verses 16 through 17, we're told that Titus was the one that was sent by the Apostle Paul to Corinth to shepherd the church in carrying out Paul's previous instructions that he had given to them. And if you take time to read Paul's previous instructions in his letter of 1 Corinthians, you find out that Titus had his hands full when it came to ministering to the Corinthians. Corinth was dealing with some major, major problems in that congregation, like arrogant division, like sexual immorality, selfish use of spiritual gifts, man-centered worship, etc. In other words, they were taking all of God's gifts, like spiritual leaders, spiritual gifts, their own body, the body of Christ, and even communion, and the Corinthians were using all of those gifts in twisted, carnal, and fleshly ways. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.3, you're still of the flesh, Why are you still behaving in a human way? And when you come together, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 says, it's not for the better, but it's for the worst. I mean, Titus was facing some major ministry obstacles there in Corinth. And so when Paul goes to Troas and he doesn't meet Titus, as was originally planned, Paul immediately becomes concerned, both for Titus and for the Corinthian church as a whole. You could say that Paul in this moment had ministry uncertainness. Imagine Paul's questions as he's looking around and not finding Titus. How is Titus doing? How did the Corinthians accept my first letter? Did I say everything I should have said? Did I say it in the way I should have said it? Did I handle these circumstances correctly? Paul is concerned to such a degree that Paul says at the end of verse 13, so I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. And by the way, even there Paul didn't find Relief, at least at the beginning, because Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians 7.5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So Paul was suffering from ministry uncertainness. Was my ministry the Corinthians a success or not? Have you ever dealt with questions like that in your service of Christ? You know, you're given an opportunity to share the gospel, perhaps, and this time you actually do. And you actually speak Christ's name into that situation, and you attempt to share God's truth. I don't know about you, but when those moments of ministry are over, if I don't watch myself, I can often start thinking, did I handle that right? Did I say everything I should have said? Did I say it the way I should have said it? 
And it doesn't take long for those questions to then lead to discouragement and fear. Maybe I didn't handle that right. Why did I say it like that? Why do I even try? If we're not careful, ministry uncertainness can cause us to abandon sharing the gospel because we feel it didn't go well or we're not successful enough in it. I can't help but wonder that even tonight, there might be someone here tonight who says, you know what, I have retreated from sharing the gospel either as a whole or to certain people because I just feel I don't do a good enough job at it. If we're not careful, ministry uncertainness can cause us to abandon sharing the gospel. Paul wasn't immune to such doubts and fears. And so what we find in this passage tonight is the truth that Paul held on to. The truth that kept Paul faithfully sharing the gospel even amid ministry uncertainness. And that truth is this. A right understanding of what success truly looks like in ministry. A right view of success a right view of success. Even though Paul hasn't yet revealed how the Corinthians responded to his ministry yet, he still says here in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. And I think that it is reflecting a thankfulness that Paul possessed even before he heard the report back from Titus. I think that this was a thankfulness that Paul possessed even before he knew how the Corinthians responded to his initial instructions. I think this is a a thankfulness that Paul was able to possess at all times in his ministry, no matter how it went or how successful he felt afterwards. This was a thankfulness that Paul could possess at all times, even in the midst of ministry uncertainness, because it was grounded in this unchanging truth that his ministry, listen to this, his ministry as a Christian, his administering of the gospel of Jesus Christ was always a success. Boy, wouldn't you like to be able to say that about your ministry? That it is always a success. A success? Paul says that here. His ministry, his evangelism efforts was always a success. So you have to ask yourself the question, whoa, what's going on here? Why does he say that? Does he say that because he was Paul and he was just filled with sheer awesomeness? Is that why he said that? No. No. Paul's ministry was always a success because God determined it it as a success and God is the only one that matters the only definition of success that matters is the definition that God gives to the word and so in face of the ministry uncertainness that was around him and often even within him Paul could still offer up here a prayer of thanksgiving to God because Paul knew he always and had already received a ministry that was successful in the eyes of God And the same can be true for us as well. We don't have to wrestle incessantly with ministry uncertainness. We don't have to be stricken with doubt of, did I handle the situation totally correct in this situation? Right? We don't have to certainly be discouraged and withdraw from ministry over ideas of success. As we'll see tonight, if you and I take the Word of God and share Christ then even if it sounds awful coming out of our mouth, and oftentimes it will, I can still be confident that that ministry moment was a resounding success because of three things. Three things. First, 
because of who was involved. Second, because of who was shared. And third, because of who was pleased. As long as I'm able to communicate the truth of Christ, then that ministry moment was a success no matter how they responded to it, no matter how I feel about it, because of who was involved, who was shared, and who was pleased. So first, our attempts at evangelism, our administering of the gospel in Christ is always a success first because of who is involved and who is involved, namely us. That's the beginning of verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Not defeat in ministry, triumphal procession. Now what in the world does that phrase triumphal procession mean? Well, basically a triumphal procession back back then in the Roman Empire was a parade that would happen rarely after a commanding general won a great war. So if you want a modern-day equivalence, think Victory in Europe Day in New York City after World War II, right? Confetti falling down, soldiers kissing random women, that type of thing, right? In Rome, it looked like this. First, marching up the streets, a company of golden trumpeters would grab everyone's attention and proclaim at the very beginning of that parade the importance of the approaching general and his great victory. Then, piled on wagons afterwards and held aloft by various servants, there would be a display of the spoils and the rich treasures that had been received and accomplished from the general's triumph. After that, a line of captives and war prisoners would be paraded past the crowds as a demonstration of the general's power. And then after that, a line of priests would come through, swinging censers of sweet incense back and forth for the general to ride through on his way to see the emperor. And then at last came the general himself, carried along in a magnificent chariot with his triumphing, triumphant army marching behind him and beneath his banner, cheering all the way, at least as recorded by historians, triumph, triumph, triumph. This was the triumphal procession. That is a triumphal procession. And so Paul, in this opening phrase, is saying this. You know what? I can rejoice, even in the midst of ministry uncertainness, even when it feels like it wasn't really the the way I would have wanted it to have been, I can rejoice in that moment because I know that I am a part of God's great triumph in Christ. I'm a participant in it. As Paul says here, God always leads us in triumphant procession. In other words, I'm a part of God's victory in Christ. And that very fact makes even my frail attempts to administer the gospel a resounding success. Just think about it. We used to be rebels and enemies of God, marching in opposition to Him, blaspheming through our words and deeds His great glory and name. But now, in Christ... I'm in God's triumphant procession, right? I'm a trumpeter who's able to proclaim the glory and worth of God. I am a spoil of His victory, being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I'm His war prisoner, bound eternally in allegiance to the great King who has bound me by the chains of His love. 
I'm a priest who's now devoted to pleasing God with every thought and action of my being. And I am now a soldier who is marching beneath the banner of the cross who gets to cheer on my victor. Triumph, triumph, triumph. I am a member of that triumphant procession of God, though once an enemy. I am in His triumph. I am swept along in the train of God's triumph. That's my life now. You know, what we do when we share the gospel as everyday believers, it may not always be pretty. You might not always want to record it and make a booklet out of it, right? But the fact that we're doing it at all makes it glorious. What we do may not be pretty, but that we're doing it is glorious. Our very act of sharing the gospel is a demonstration of God's victory in Christ, which makes our sharing of the gospel always a success. Always a success. Whenever we communicate the truth of Christ, that moment is always a success. First, because who is involved? Us. Wow. That you and I would be sharing the glories of God? Though once his enemy? Second, When we share Christ, when we communicate the truth of Christ, that moment is always a success because of who is shared. Namely, Jesus. That's at the end of verse 14. Where Paul says this, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So here Paul is taking that image of a triumphal procession, right? And he zeroes in particularly on the priests. And he says, you know what? Whenever we share the gospel with others, we're like those priests that are in the triumphal procession who swing their censers around and are spreading that that pleasant fragrance in advance of the victor. That's what we're like as believers. And Paul is saying whenever we communicate the truth of Christ, it's always a success because when we do that, we're spreading the fragrance, he says, of the knowledge of him that is God everywhere. Our attempts to share Christ, no matter how outwardly lame, (laughs) are always a success because of who is being shared, namely Jesus. This is how the knowledge of God is shared. It is through Jesus. Paul says later on, just just a few verses later, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines forth and is given where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So this is why our attempts to administer the gospel to the lost are always a success because of, those, because of who is being shared. It is Jesus. He is the one who is the express image of the glory of God. Now if all you're sharing in your witnessing is yourself, your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own perspectives separated from Christ and you're just giving moral maxims to the lost, then yes, Your evangelism is lousy. But if you're sharing the truth of God in direct connection to Jesus Christ, even if it doesn't sound pretty, you are an absolute success because of who you're sharing. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. If you're doing that, your attempts at evangelism are always glorious because He is glorious. And so even if you don't think, even if you get done with something and you say, boy, that didn't turn out well, which happens to me quite often, sharing Christ with someone is always a success because Jesus was shared. Even if they only caught a passing scent or a faint glimmer or a brief taste of who Jesus is, that is a success 
Because as Psalms 24, verse 8 says, even a taste is enough to know that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So whenever you're tempted to be discouraged in ministry because you don't think it went well, just ask yourself the question, was Jesus mentioned? Is Jesus more at the forefront of their mind now that I've talked to them than He was before? If the answer is yes, then that ministry was a success, regardless of how they responded to it. Why? Because of who was involved. Second, because of who was shared. And then finally, because of who was pleased. And that is God. That's in verses 15-16, through 16, where Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Here Paul takes that image of a, of a triumphal procession and of the priests swinging their censers in the midst of that procession and he zooms in even further. One final click, right? And he says, you know what? Not only are we like uh, in a triumphal procession and not only are we like priests in that procession, but we're also like the incense being spread by the priests in that procession. He's really dragging out the illustration in other words. See, the incense was marked... Uh, the, the incense marked the arrival of the general, and it would not only be enjoyed by the general throughout the parade, but the incense offered up by the priest would also be enjoyed by the emperor who was waiting at the end of that parade. So I want you to picture it, if you were there, as the general's victory procession draws near and that victory fragrance begins to spread and waft up towards the throne every time that pleasant aroma hits the noise of the emperor on the throne that emperor is reminded of his general's great victory which was also his own victory and so what does the aroma of that conquering general do to the emperor it pleases him it pleases him and so get this, Paul is saying, whenever we as, as frail and faulty Christians share the truth of Christ with others, we are the very aroma of Christ to God. We are, in a sense, reminding, reminding God of the one whom He loves the most in that moment when we are sharing the Gospel. Has there ever been an aroma that you love simply because it is associated with the person you love. This is an incredibly dorky illustration, but it works for me, and so I'm going to share it. Chara used to have this perfumed body spray that she wore while she was at college. And every time we met together, which was always six inches apart, of course, because we were at Bob Jones, I would smell that perfume. It was, you could say, the aroma of Chara. And so, because I fell in love with her, I fell in love with it. Sometimes Char would write me short little notes like, here's the book we talked about. And she'd spray them with her perfume. Guess what? I treasured all those notes. Not because they said anything earth-shatteringly amazing, but solely because they bore the aroma of the one I love. Through their aroma, they reminded me of her. In fact, I would have loved to have received more dorky little notes from her, bathed in that perfume, because they reminded me of her. Guess what? Every time 
you open up your mouth and share the truth of Christ, even if what you say is not earth-shatteringly amazing, God is pleased because in that moment, you are sharing the truth and have become the very aroma of Christ. Because guess what Christ did when He was on this earth? He shared the truth. He shared the truth. John 18.37, Jesus said to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And so every time you and I witness to the truth and share Jesus Christ with someone, even if it's a, a, in a kind of a dorky way, we are doing the very thing that Christ did, the Beloved One whom God loves. And God sees that act of witnessing, and He says, That smells like Christ. I love it. I love it. And He is well pleased. He is well pleased. He sees us doing what Jesus Himself did and it pleases God immensely. And so while others might not appreciate or respond to the Gospel the way that we'd hope, as Paul makes clear in these two verses, right? To some it's to those leading to life, to the Gospel. uh, The Gospel is also leading to death to death for others. Even though people might not respond as we would hope always, that's okay. Because success isn't isn't determined by the response from people. It's determined by the pleasure of God. And one thing we always know is that if we open our mouth and we bear witness to Christ, God is always pleased. Always pleased. That moment is always a success. So we don't have to wrestle incessantly with ministry uncertainness. We don't have to be stricken with doubts of, well, should I really share the gospel because I don't know if I'm going to handle it correctly? I don't know if I'm going to do everything right. And we certainly don't need to be discouraged or withdraw from ministry over false definitions of success or because someone slams a door in our face one time. As long as I'm able to communicate the truth of Christ, I can be confident that that moment was a success in the eyes of the only one that matters. Why? Because of who is involved? Us. Because of who was shared. Christ, and because of who is pleased, God. In Christ, we are gifted ministry success, which is remarkable. And that's why Paul says here at the end, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is no one, when you consider the glory of the ministry that we've received in Christ. As Paul says later on in chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, our sufficiency comes from God. He is the one who has gifted us this ministry success and therefore just like paul we ought to thank god that we have a ministry like this a ministry that is of triumphal procession always because we are in christ jesus so i see two challenges from this when i study this passage one we ought to thank god for every opportunity that we have to share the gospel because it is another evidence that we are a part of that triumphal procession and then second Don't let fear keep you from opening your mouth and sharing Christ because the very attempt to do it guarantees it's a success in the eyes of God. Don't judge success based on people's response. Judge success based on the pleasure of God. And so that's what I wanted to share with you all tonight. In Christ, God will always lead us in triumphal procession. We ought to praise God for the gift of successful ministry. So as you're thinking about the different ways 
that you serve here in this church, remember, as long as we make Christ the center of it, God is pleased. God is pleased. It is a success.